Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, selling BBC Three, independent producers John Thoday and Jimmy Mulville have put a cheeky yet serious bid in to buy BBC Three. Is this something the Beeb should seriously consider? Jihadi John. The media has been criticised for turning terrorist Jihadi John into a modern-day Jesse James. Is the scale of the coverage becoming counterproductive? And The Mail Online, a former journalist has accused his old employer of dishonesty, plagiarism and near-fabrication. Should we be concerned? And are we complicit when we visit the sidebar of shame? And joining us are two of the media's best and brightest, William Turvill is news editor at the Press Gazette and Natalie Nahai is a web psychologist, author and contributor at Marketing Week. Media Focus. So first up, should the BBC consider selling BBC Three rather than moving it online? Executives at firms Avalon and Hattrick have submitted an audacious bid to buy the channel. The rumoured £100 million bid was immediately rejected by the Beeb, saying the channel was not for sale because it wasn't closing. Director of Television Danny Cohen later explained that they couldn't sell BBC Three because it would be impossible to sell a BBC-branded station, its prominent EPG slot, or programme rights it didn't own. William, what's your take? Is this a cheeky bit of PR here, or do you think they have a serious point? Yes, I, th- I think it is a bit of a cheeky bit of PR, really. And if it's going to make the BBC think about about their plans for serving the licence fee payer, then uh, then good on them, really. Do you think the BBC lack a vision here? Because clearly they they wanted to close it down. I mean, moving it online is basically closing it down anyway. Wouldn't you agree? As someone who fits into the into the age bracket they're aiming BBC Three at, I'd say I'm I would be very unlikely to go online to to watch a BBC Three programme, especially a new one. Do you watch BBC Three? I do, yeah, um, but but not. I, I wouldn't go out of my way to do it. I, I watch it because it's there, but I think if they were online, it would be very difficult to draw me in and therefore that would be taken away from me. I actually disagree on that point. Mm. Um, most of the TV I watch, if I watch any TV at all, and actually all of the radio I listen to is all online, um, I think if they're looking to attract more people in and maybe retain some of their existing uh, viewers, then actually moving it online could be a really, really good thing because you're going to be making it more available to an audience that might otherwise not realise it's there. So, for instance, going onto the BBC website and you're looking at BBC Radio 4, Radio 2, suddenly if they're advertising BBC Radio 3 more prominently, it's going to attract more eyes, and I think there's, there's something to be said for doing that. I don't know about you, but I, I don't actually watch BBC Three other than avidly watching Family Guy as I'm going to sleep on a night. You know, that seems to be... American Dad and Family Guy seems to be mm. the thing that everyone watches. That's their staple. They've clearly failed, though, if, if they're not making a go of this as a viable terrestrial channel. I mean, there, there are hundreds of online TV channels. Is this something that the BBC should be doing? I suppose should is, is the question, isn't it? I mean, it depends on what their goals are. If they're looking to grow a user base, to reach out to new customers who are going to be a younger demographic, then having a bit more of an online push is going to serve them well. If they're looking to compete with other channels that also serve up the same programmes, which they do, um, and especially when people are downloading stuff illegally, then I wonder if actually there's a demographic to be had at all. I mean, there there is an argument to be said here that the BBC Three is at the cutting edge because it's a youth demographic, that actually this is signposting the death of television channels itself. You know, BBC mm. One and BBC Two have a much older demographic and older people do watch more television. That's, that's not me generalising, the evidence shows that. Mm. Do you think that this shows the death of television generally? <laughs> no, I think it does, uh, it, it does point towards a different type of customer, a different kind of viewing habit. And I think... We always kind of lament the loss of one technology when it gets replaced by another or the use of one in a particular way when there's a new usage pattern that emerges. But that's just what happens generationally. We we saw the same thing happened with letters to email or 
whatever happened before that. So I think it's not something that's going to be a very, very quick and sudden change. But you're right in pointing out that it's probably something that indicates the shape of things to come. Do you think that most people, though, are moving on to iPlay now, that linear television is dead? I mean, that's probably a better way of asking the question. London Live, for example, has noticeably struggled because no one wants to watch 24-7 London news. Mm. Yes, I mean, I think what we are seeing emerge is a kind of trend towards event-based television. So the only live TV that people tend to watch is if there's something that's bringing a nation together. So, for instance, if it's sports or if it's a particular news story, like with Charlie Hebdo and all that, people were flocking to news channels um, just to be able to experience something in real time with their peers and the wider community. So I think, yes, I would agree that linear television is no longer something that's become our staple, uh, but there are instances in which people do log on altogether and watch something in real time with their peers. William, do you think the BBC should commit to linear television for young people because of the unique way the BBC is funded? It has an obligation to reach out to many communities, including young people. And that demographic's not going to be served if the first thing that they do is shut the channel at the uh, the first sign of trouble. I think that a website's not going to perform the same service because, well, it, I mean, this, this comes down to my viewing habits. I, I only watch BBC Three when I'm scrolling through my through my TV listings, and, and that's how I discover things. And... John Thoday and uh, Jimmy Mulville were saying, I think they've said that what they think is it's going to be a bad thing for new comedies coming out. And I, and I agree with that. I don't see, me personally, I don't think I could discover new comedies if they were just online, no matter how big the advertising mm-hmm. push. I I just don't think that's something that I do as a, as a consumer of television. I'd watch something on television, give it a go, but I think it's quite a big commitment to, for me at least, to find something on my laptop then hook it up onto my TV because I do want to watch it on a bigger screen. Do you take the BBC's point, though, that the young people demographic is quite well served by the commercial marketplace? I mean, whilst I do watch Family Guy on BBC Three, I also watch Peep Show on Channel 4, for example. Mm. That, that You know, we have Sky at home and there's, there's probably literally 80 and 90 youth-oriented options available on the EPG. You know, why should the BBC be serving markets that's, best served, that's already being served by commercial operators? I suppose you could say the same about BBC News the BBC News Channel, I mean, you've got Sky News Channel, you've got RT now in the UK, Al Jazeera. Um, you could say about EastEnders when there's Coronation yeah, Street. you could say about that. Um, so you think the BBC are damned if they do and damned if they don't? Uh, <laughs> inevitably they always are, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> they? They enjoy kicking themselves, I think, more than other people do. <laughs> Natalie, this will only save a few million. It's quite an inexpensive TV channel anyway. When you compare that to the budget of, say, one programme on BBC One, like Top Gear... The whole channel costs like a fifth of what Top Gear does. Do you think the BBC ought to have had fewer episodes of Top Gear or even cut Jeremy Clarkson from there <laughs> in an effort to save the channel? Oh, God, poor old Jeremy Clarkson. Well, not, there's nothing poor about him. He's filthy rich. Um, I, think, I think if it was a case of uh, making the decision based on budgeting and they do have a strong viewership on terrestrial, then it seems crazy to kind of just axe it. That would be my um, my take on it, even though I tend to watch all my TV online and the people that I think they're probably serving also tend to watch most of their media online. Um, if there isn't a good reason for them to axe it, then it might just have been quite a bold move on their part and probably not a very wise one. 
The problem is, you see, I, I understand the BBC have got finite resources, but if you've got a pound in your pocket, mm. you can choose to spend it on either a youth-orientated TV channel, I'm stretching the analogy here, or you can you can put it on a massive budget to do with a motoring programme. I mean, they mm. do have a choice. Why Why has Top Gear got all those programmes? I'm picking on Top Gear for some reason because mm. it's an expensive show. But the BBC could cut a period drama, for example, but it's, it's, it's choosing to cut this. Do, do you think that there's a strong argument that it, because it is served by, or the youth market is served by commercial operators, that they shouldn't be in this market? at all or do you think their public service ethos means they, they should be doing something I actually think that if they are one of the only channels in the world that actually demand their citizens well their citizens like the BBC <laughs> as a state but essentially that's what they're doing we're, mm. we're forced by law um, to pay for these channels I'm actually personally quite happy about that I think the quality is very high but I think that if you look at it through the lens of rights and actually that there are a lot of young people who are accessing TV like William says through their television sets then they have a right as do the parents and the adults in this world, to access that information, to access that media uh, in the form that they choose. So from that perspective, if there isn't a strong argument to access it, I would say it's better to keep it. William, do you think, I mean, lots of people try and carve up the cake different ways. Like on the podcast a couple of ones ago, we were talking about CEOs of like local newspapers were saying the BBC should provide them with some syndicated content. Do you, mm. do you think that the BBC should stand alone or do you think it should start to work more cooperatively with other brands, other channels, other news-gathering organisations? I suppose it's a bit different. With, with local newspapers, I, that's more, that's more my, my area of expertise. And, and I would say yes, absolutely, because local newspaper groups are, are losing a lot of money and the BBC, in their view, and I, I tend to agree with it in a lot of cases, tends to take their news stories and dominates uh, local coverage because it's got such large resources. Do you view the BBC as a competitor? You, you're, a, mm. you're a journalist at Press Gazette. I mean, there's the media show, Steve Hewlett's uh, yeah. gaff on Radio 4. They've, they've got strong media coverage online. Do you yeah. view them as a competitor or do you view them as a, a collaborator? If you don't oh, oh a com competitor, absolutely. Um, but a competitor that are in a completely different ballpark. It's not too often a Press Gazette story would make a, would make a BBC story. But when it does... That's that's it for us, really. And in terms in terms of our website traffic, for instance, the phone hacking trial—that's Press Gazette's biggest story. Of it was by far our biggest story of last year, mm. or certainly the the first half of last year. And because it was being covered so extensively on the BBC and and other organisations, obviously, but but the BBC, I suppose, would have been one of the main ones. They they're take they're taking the traffic, and that's the problem for for local newspapers as well, except on a more frequent scale because. There's a fire. There's a fire at, the, at a local bank in a town. Local newspapers cover it, but as soon as the BBC swoops in, people generally will will go to the BBC more frequently because it's a national website, and it's a more, it's I suppose it's a more trusted brand in in many cases. So next up is the media obsessed with Jihadi John. The media has been criticised for giving terrorist Mohammed Mwazi the nickname and printing endless pictures and clips from the Islamic State's propaganda videos. Critics say that the press risk playing into their hands, not only by glamorising him, but by desensitising us to the violence. Defence Committee MP Bob Stewart says that the media has turned Emoise into a modern-day Jesse James and has warned that the scale of coverage risks further radicalising young people. Natalie, does Bob Stewart have a point? Do you think they should ease up on the coverage? Well, I think there are two key issues that are at play here. The first is around exposure and the second is around freedom of press and freedom of speech. So the first with exposure, the kinds of images and content that they're talking about are extraordinarily violent, um, extremely disturbing, and I think there is something to be said for 
the fact that we're becoming increasingly desensitized by these sorts of images. If we think back to when we've seen people uh, like Saddam Hussein get hung, I mean, that was extremely extreme in terms of the kind of stuff that we've seen prior to that, which is nowhere near as violent, and then actually witnessing something in real time. And there was a huge amount of uh, media kerfuffle and uproar, rightly so, about that being shown. And yet, if we compare something like that to the kind of more visceral horrors of seeing people being beheaded, even though it's still someone suffering at the hands of someone else, there's there's a certain level of gruesomeness that we're kind of upping the game. And we see this play out also within pornography. So if you're going to look at trends for more intense and also unpalatable things, um, typically what you find is that our, our limbic system responds quite strongly the first few times that we see something. So whether that's a beheading or bestiality or whatever it might be. And that over time, we our responses ameliorate and they dampen. So we need more of a hit to get that same response. So if we're thinking about the kind of media and its role in terms of framing this debate and what they're trying to do, which is to educate people and hopefully dissuade people from becoming radicalised, um, then they do have something to answer for in terms of not encouraging people to see this as a positive thing. I mean, the media would argue that they're wanting to show the terrorist acts for what they are, to turn people off and raise awareness of what they're doing. But do you, do you think that there is just a quite a basic agenda here that they need to drive eyeballs to the news channel and that uh, the more that the stories cover, the less people are interested and therefore they have to increase the intensity of it just to retain the viewers? I think one of the issues around intensity is that if you start to scale up or ramp up the intensity of news stories in the short term, then it also has a long-term effect. So whereas we might be quite shocked by these revelations now, when you hear about someone being taken hostage or you hear about a shooting, people don't bat an eyelid anymore because it's become part of our cultural discourse and it never used to be. And so I think there is something there that we have to look at in terms of making sure that people get access to this news and seeing it for what it is, but also not glamorising it and not uh, lowering our visceral response to it as something that is abhorrent and that should be treated delicately and, and not encouraged by its, its being plastered all over our different various news channels. William, clearly one of the other pressures on the ruling news networks is the fact that often they don't have time in the moment to make considered and thoughtful news judgments that, you know, a day or so later, on reflection, might have appeared that they've shown too much. But do you think more generally, though, you know, they're showing jihadi John too much? I don't think they are generally, no. They're not showing everything. They're not, they're not showing the beheadings. Their journalists are watching the beheadings so that their readers and their viewers don't have to. I think they'll be making some very considered editorial decisions as to how much to include, how much detail to include. I think with what Bob Stewart was saying, the problem with that is that he doesn't really know what impact he's going to have, and neither do the newspapers. They're, everyone's trying to trying to make make a judgment call. And I think certainly with newspapers, I think they've, they've probably held back to what they'd consider an appropriate degree. Obviously, it's more difficult for broadcasters, as you say, when they have to make a, when they have to make a decision within, within minutes often, especially with, with their rivals deciding whether to do this or not. It does make it very difficult for them, and perhaps, perhaps they've regretted certain decisions they've made 24 hours on. And websites have exactly the same problem, um, and I'm sure... A lot of websites have published certain images, published certain names, and then withdrawn those those names or images later on after they've 
fully considered the situation. So Fox News recently showed a 15-minute video clip of the pilot that was recently burned alive, and they showed the thing in its entirety and very mm. robustly defended it, refusing to take it down. Do you think, though, that there's a wider point here, that this is what the terrorists want? You know, they're, they're repeatedly beheading people because they want lots of beheading videos to appear in the media, and are we, albeit reluctantly, aren't we doing their bidding in giving them what they want? I suppose the terrorist organisations themselves aren't going to know for sure what the impact of these of these videos being shown is. Broadcasters, newspapers don't know what that impact's going to be either. Obviously, these videos are being put online, messages are being put out on social media for a reason. I think it would be patronising of the media to keep this sort of thing secret from the public. I think they have a duty to report it all and hold back hold back certain images when where necessary. But I mean, we shouldn't forget that if anyone if anyone really wants to watch these videos, they are on they are on YouTube, they're on social media, they are available. I mean, Natalie, you're the web psychologist. There's a wider point here that that William refers to there, which is that. In a sense, the TV networks are damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. His mm. point is, it's all available on the internet and if I want to watch the video clip, I can. So the news should report stuff that's happening. If these terrorists mm. are beheading people, then they are, that's, there's no problem with them leading their news bulletins with that and showing some footage to illustrate it. Yes, and I, I, I have to say I agree. I mean, I think the difficulty here really is about what they hold back and what they represent. And I think it's it's something which has to be very delicately handled. And like he says about the long-term impacts. We don't really know what the long-term impact will be. However, I think that as a rule of thumb, there are ways to frame and describe and discuss horrors that are happening in the world without beaming them as images into people's heads. Because the problem is, of course, when you see something, especially when you're a kid, visual imagery is a lot more visceral, a lot more emotional, it packs a lot more impact, and it's a lot harder to get rid of um, than something that you read, for instance. So I think in terms of my own experience working with people, typically if there's a difficult subject, you see this often in editorials, so things where there might be triggers in the content for people who have suffered traumas of various kinds, there'll be a trigger warning. So there, there is some choice for the, for the viewer or the reader as to whether or not they want to be exposed to that specific medium uh, through which they're telling the story. And I think that's also a crucial point to make, is that we have to have choice as to how we want to consume these very difficult news stories. And if we don't get given that choice, um, I think that's when we start running into problems. Is there any evidence to suggest that people are more daring when they're online in terms of what they would be prepared to watch? Um, you know, you, you hear anecdotally that people are ruder on Twitter than they would be in real life, for example. Is it, is it that, is there any evidence in terms of behaviourally that people will look at videos that they wouldn't, or, you know, they would turn away from if they were on television in their living room, but because they're, it's on their laptop or their iPad, they will, they will watch it and be that bit more daring? Yeah, so one of the things that's happening there is the online disinhibition effect. So basically what you see is that if you're not in front of the person that you're responding to or interacting with, we tend to respond in a way that you wouldn't face-to-face. -face. So things like trolling or flaming or uh, saying things that might be hurtful. Um, so that is one element that, that our online behaviours do uh, differ from the way that our offline behaviours uh, present themselves. The other thing, of course, is that if people are consuming this media either through their laptops or through their handheld devices, tablets, phones, etc. We have a very different physical relationship to handheld devices and to desktops than we do to our much more physically distant TVs, which sounds like an odd point to make. Mm. But because it's a more intimate medium, the technology is much closer to our bodies, we're more likely to take risks in terms of what we're going to look at because we're not going to be seen by anyone else. And there's that much more private sense of, well, I'm just going to watch this and see what happens. Another aspect, of course, is that when you 
flick from one site to another. So the sidebar of shame, you get distracted, something looks appealing. Um, you're kind of engaged in a, in a way that, that enables you to react quickly and make a quick choice, which means that you're actually stopping people in some respects from making a considered uh, weighed decision as to whether or not to make the choice to click on the button or to watch whatever link is there. Um, and so I think that off, offline watching TV is a very different thing to online accessing this media. William, final question then on this is, where do you think the line should be drawn? I mean, do you think the broadcasters have it about right, that they have to show, uh, you know, the, the, the hostage there about to have his head cut off and then they, they, they cut away or show the aftermath? Do you, do you think that's, that strikes the right balance or do you think that they ought to be just a little bit further or a little bit further back from that line? No, I, I think they've got it about right. Obviously, I haven't I haven't been watching Sky News, BBC News, twenty four hours a day, so I don't know if perhaps they've gone too far and it hasn't been picked up on. But I, I think they've drawn drawn the line about right, um, and certainly images used on um, news websites and newspapers, I think, are about right. Really, you know, not showing too much, but um, showing enough to demonstrate the horror of the situation. And finally, should we worry about journalistic standards at the Mail Online? A former Daily Mail employee has written a searing attack on his former employer, accusing the paper of dishonesty, theft of copyrighted material and sensationalism so absurd that it crosses into fabrication. James King alleges that journalists were told to rip content from other sites, repackage it with an explosive and inaccurate headline in an effort to maximise traffic to the mail site. DailyMail.com MD Rhiannon MacDonald has since issued a statement saying that the company utterly refutes these claims. William, you used to work at the Mail Online, so come on, spill the beans. Should we be concerned? <laughs> I made the decision not to spill any beans when I, when I left. And, uh, Wise. I'll, 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 be, I'll be sticking to that. I think the things that um, James King has, has said are perhaps shocking to some but anyone who's anyone who's read you know there, there've been there've been a few of these expose blogs written from former mail online employees i i think i think it was a well written piece um but i i don't think any of it was overly surprising to anyone who who's read anything about working at the mail online before isn't this a bit like chocolate that you go into the petrol station and you know what it is you're complicit in it it's naughty but we all do it and therefore <laughs> we best not discuss it <laughs> you know is it a guilty pleasure i think the uh, the picture that um james king paints it's obviously not very chocolatey when you're working there no indeed <laughs> but but yeah i mean it's uh, it's obviously an extremely popular website and I think the the point the point I'd make about what James King has said is that that sort of website might be might be rare in the United States. And I know they've got I know that journalists take a great pride in their work, and there are very strict copyright rules. But James's point is that they're pushing those rules to within an inch of their lives. I mean, you know, mm. critics would say, look, the Mail Online has such a large online footprint. If the Daily Mirror have a story, the Mail just rewrite it. They, they give a, a quicker attribution to the, the Daily Mirror, you know, that no one clicks on, and then mm. th they get the story. So they're just, it's almost to the point of plagiarism, but not quite, and it's still unfair. That's his point. Mm. If If it was the other way around... And the mirror happened to be the bigger website and was more successful. Then I'm sure I'm sure there'd be arguments saying that the mirror um, is, is plagiarising the mail. But it just just so happens that the mail is the biggest and most successful national newspaper website globally. Yeah, globally, it's widely regarded as the most visited news website in the world. Is it not? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And I think I think because of that, it will get picked on. And obviously, it's got a bigger staff devoted to its website than possibly any other news website in the world 
and so it's going to get picked on. But, but I suppose you've got to think that other websites, such as other national newspaper websites in the UK, want to be the Mail Online. And if they were as successful as Mail Online, then they'd be picked on in the same way. I think a lot of news websites um, employ similar tactics to the Daily Mail. They're just not quite as successful. It sounds like it's the Wild West, doesn't it? There's just no (laughs) rules. What do you think the magic mix is with the mail? What do you think it's got right? You know, the unique combination. It just seems to have a lot of celebrity, a lot of uh, pictures of very young starlets of both Mm. genders. Well, largely uh, female, I would say. Mm. But, uh, you know, it it, it clearly has a, a way of transacting its business on a day to day, which is um, very successful. What do you think the, the levers are? Mm. Well, obviously, the the sidebar of shame is a, a big one at drawing people in. Um, but then also, you know, it publishes, I think, at last count, around 600 articles a day. That, that's globally. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's a few more now because it mm. always seems to be growing. But it, it's the fact that it does them all and it finds these, these incredible stories and just publishes them all, whereas other news news organisations wouldn't have the, the time and resources to do so. But, you know, it's just an incredible amount of content and that's one of the reasons they do so well. Natalie, what's the psychology of the sidebar of shame, as we keep calling it? I, I should say, in fairness, they don't call it that, but uh, that <laughs> seems to be what it's known as, as popular. Uh, I mean, for example, I, I don't like looking at it, but inevitably you get drawn into reading articles mm. that um, you, you've no interest in, but you think, ooh, that Hollywood starlet has put some weight on on her thighs, and you just click on it, and I hate myself for doing it, but yeah. it's, it's almost like driving up the M1 and seeing a car accident that you just you can't help but look, can you? Is that, do, do you think that's a, a large part of it? <laughs> well, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head that they they really have a key understanding of psychological triggers of certain principles for instance the the contrast principle before and after pictures we can't help but look the brain has to figure out what the story is what's happened and then if you throw that in with some sexual triggers so seeing someone that's attractive and young whether you're a woman and you're fluid sexuality and you're attracted to her or you're comparing yourself or whether you're a man and you're finding this woman attractive whatever there's, they, they know how to pull these particular levers in such a way as to make it really um, clickable. And I actually, I would contest that some of their stuff is clickbait in that if you qualify clickbait mm-hmm. as something which is a title, which is a psychological, um, is designed psychologically to trigger people into acting, and then you don't deliver what you claim to deliver in the headline, as we've seen with this expose, if it is true, that that seems to be the case, um, then actually you're generating empty traffic and you are stealing traffic and um, eyeballs away from other more reputable places. And I think that's that's uh, probably a bit of a problem. But I think also it's, it's what they stand for. So in terms of their kind of business model, I think they've positioned themselves very intelligently as an entertainment hub. It's not, I wouldn't say that it's the place that people who want serious news go to. They'd go to the BBC or they go to another thing like, I don't know, Sky News, whatever. So you're going there when you're bored at work, you've got 30 minutes on a phone call that's, you know, interminable. What are you going to do? You're going to have a look at the sidebar of shame and see who's got their bum hanging out or because it's something that's entertaining. It's like BuzzFeed. It's a similar source of structure. Uh, and they've done that very, very well. But do you not think that it's it's slightly different qualitatively to BuzzFeed because they they quite deliberately go for intrusive personal pictures? I mm. mean, Paul Dacre many, many years ago said that he wouldn't use uh, intrusive paparazzi-based shots, particularly of young people, and clearly, if you look at the Mail Online, they're doing that every day. Mm. Um, well, what do you think of the ethics of it? I mean, we, we, all, we all look at it, so, you know, we're all complicit in it, but on the other hand, I do wish it wasn't there. Well... Or some of the pictures they use weren't there, I should yeah. say. So we've always had problems with paparazzi. I think now the problem is that there's a much wider platform where a lot more people can get access to this kind of image. And because it's so tantalising, and it is tantalising, you know, how many of us don't think when we're sat there at our job 
doing a PowerPoint presentation for the hundredth time for a bunch of people that are never going to, you know, really pay attention. How many of us are not tempted to go off and, and scroll through someone else's fantasy life and have that schadenfreude of, I don't know, this person's got an amazing life and look at Kanye West and isn't her bum massive if you're looking at <laughs> Kim Kardashian? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that there is, it's seductive and it's tantalising. And I think in my experience, I just have to adopt an all or nothing approach because you, our brains are hardwired to go for this tantalising stuff. And we get a dopamine hit every time we see it, every time we get a little bit of reward, which includes something that's, either sexual or it's something that our peers have sent or it's something that arouses an emotional response we get that reward sensation in the brain and so it initiates this hunger this seeking this this wanting to consume more stuff that will give us that reward and that's what they do really really well William do you think that's why they've deliberately differentiated mailonline.com from the Daily Mail as a brand to keep the two separate one's a newspaper and the other one as Natalie would say and many would argue that it's an entertainment hub online I mean I mean the separation is is there obviously but it was interesting to see um, in January that its most popular days online were the 7th and 8th of January. So that was the Charlie Hebdo attack. I think I think that would have driven most of it. I mean, so it's, it's interesting because people don't really think of it as a place to go for serious news. But I think it, it almost is. I mean, maybe, maybe that's incidental. I think, you know, the Mail Online gets a huge amount of its traffic from people going onto its website. And so I suppose if the Charlie Hebdo attack's going on on its website, then people will click on it. It does have a reputation for the for the celebrity side of things, but I think it also does the other things extensively, and I'm sure it got more more hits for Char- for its Charlie Hebdo coverage than every other national newspaper website. Still, despite the fact that most people do go there initially for something celebrity or something a bit quirky or something funny, or you know, a sexy picture of of, <laughs> of someone. I think that's a really interesting point because we're basically talking about an ecosystem, and some ecosystems are more exciting and more tantalising and seductive than others. And I think what they've managed to do really well is put the bait out there. It's, you know, if you're if you've got if you're trying to attract a bunch of mice, you're going to put out your best cheese, and then hopefully at some point they'll see the rest of the buffet. And that's I think what they're doing. Of course, they're going to be able to report on other stories, but if if front and centre, and it usually is when you go on the site, if front and centre on the site you've got sexy images and you've got stuff that people are going to get angry about or fired up about or have an opinion on um, that matters to their daily lives, like you're saying about local stories and things mm. that other news newscasters just simply can't reach because of the sheer size of the mail, um, then I think that they are positioning themselves to be the primary deliverers, not only of all the sexy stuff and the celebrity gossip and the paparazzi and all the rest, but also of the other stories that might well be much better covered in a lot more context and to mm. a much higher level of journalistic integrity. But because it's there and it's easy and it's right next to the tantalising stuff, people will go. I'm sure, that, and I'm, I'm sure that Guardian, The Telegraph, they, they have their live blogs. They probably cover things um, in more depth and definitely with more original reporting than, than the Mail Online on some breaking news stories. But the fact is that people go to the Mail Online to read those stories, which is a, which is a, shame, which is a shame for them, I suppose, in, in, in many senses. Obviously, all 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 newspaper websites use press association and other agencies to get their news. But it, it seems a shame when when you have someone from from the Telegraph or the Evening Standard or the Guardian at the scene at the scene of an incident. More people will be reading it on Mail Online. Um, it's frustrating for them. It must. Be. I'm sure it's very frustrating for them. Exactly. Yeah. So they they come for pictures of Kim Kardashian's bottom, but they stay for an in-depth analysis of the current inflation rates, no doubt. Uh, and I think that's an excellent point to leave it there. Guys, uh, how do people follow you on Twitter? Natalie, should we start with you? How do, what's your Twitter ID? What's your website? Tell us about your book as well. So my, my Twitter handle is at Natalie Nahai, and my website is thewebpsychologist.com. 
Um, I wrote a book two years ago with Pearson, which is called Webs of Influence, The Psychology of Online Persuasion. And I'm currently working on my new book, which is about how the internet covertly hijacks our decisions and manipulates our behaviours and our relationships for good and for bad. So the whole gamut and what you can do about it. I will look forward to reading that with interest. William? My Twitter handle is WTurville and my website is pressgazette.co.uk. And you can follow me on Twitter at Paul W.R. Blanchard. You can also visit our website, mediafocus.org.uk, where you can leave your email address and receive a shiny email once a fortnight, letting you know when the new podcast is out. That's it. Thank you ever so much for listening. The associate producer was Jordan Greenway. I'm Paul Blanchard. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. <laughs> Big Things!